Today is Palm Sunday, and so in many ways we should have been in Luke chapter 19, thinking about when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. But these few weeks just leading up to Easter, uh, we've been looking at these two chapters, really, Luke 22, 23, and 24 in the morning and evening services, really to try to focus our minds on what Easter is all about that we're coming to. And here we have in Luke's story of the crucifixion, uh, a way in which I really quite marveled at how, at one level, how simple and unadorned and unsensational is the description of the crucifixion here. I mean, if this had been portrayed on our television screens, it would have been a lot more gory than the way it is told. And yet, of course, in that simplicity, Luke has woven into it something of the meaning of the cross, and he does it in a number of different ways. But even even at the very surface level of simply reading that story, you can get the point. Jesus was innocent of any wrongdoing. It was an unjust trial. Jesus died forgiving others. Jesus died to save even those who were taunting him that he couldn't save himself. And Jesus died promising life to a repentant sinner. So even just telling us those things, in a sense, is the gospel, even if we go no deeper. But we can go deeper, because what I would like us to see is how Luke shows us, portrays the meaning of the cross through four echoes of scripture that are in here, through those three taunts that were hurled at Jesus, and through two of the last sayings of Jesus. So it's a kind of four, three, two, one sermon. So first of all, then, these four echoes of the scripture. See, at one level, Luke simply records four scenes that he describes that are happening here, but in each one of them, he either directly quotes from the Old Testament scripture or one way or another, he kind of alludes to it for those who would have had ears to hear who knew their scriptures. And the first one is the weeping women in verses 26 to 31. You can see them there. Jesus is going to the place of crucifixion. Simon is carrying his cross and women are wailing for him, for Jesus. And then Jesus stops them and says, don't, don't cry for me. Weep for yourselves because worse than this is going to come. And he's referring, of course, to the uh, siege of this Jerusalem that would happen not very many years later, when indeed women who had no children would count themselves preferable to women who would have to watch their children die of starvation in the siege. And then Jesus quotes a verse from Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. That's in verse 30. Can you see it? They will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. That is to say, they would be so desperate that they'd rather be dead and buried than having to endure the suffering. And then a proverb in verse 31, which probably means that if you think this is bad, there's worse to come. What is Jesus doing here? What is Luke doing? This scripture is referring back to... Uh, the destruction of Jerusalem that had happened 700 years before when Hosea had spoken about it, and it had been so terrible. And the next time this verse of Hosea is used in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, when it's in the mouths of those who will face the wrath of God and of the Lamb on the day of judgment. And Jesus is saying, on that day, people will wish, as it were, to be buried rather than to face the judgments. So that's the first echo of Scripture that either we will find shelter in the cross where Jesus bore God's judgment for us, or we will find no shelter 
from the judgment of God when we stand before him. So that's the first scene. The second one is the gambling soldiers who come up in verses 32 to 34. And I look, you know, doesn't tell us much about the crucifixion because these soldiers, they'd done it so many times before. This is just some other wretch to bang up on a cross. And then they just sat down, heedless of what they'd just done, and start gambling over his clothes. The last few shreds of clothing that he still had, they stripped it off him and they decide to gamble for it. Whoever wins it, well, they can sell it in the marketplace for a few shekels later on. They're gambling for his clothing. They cast lots for his clothing. You can read it there in verse 34. But again, you see, for anyone who has eyes to see or ears to hear, that immediately would bring to mind Psalm 22, which says this of someone who was suffering desperately, and it's often regarded as a psalm that in many ways is prophetic of Christ's suffering. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display and people stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. That, says Luke, that's what's happening, that psalm. And then we move on to another psalm because in verses 35 to 39, it seems that pretty well everybody is mocking Jesus and taunting him. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But as the soldiers join in, can you see it there? That they raise some vinegar to his mouth. In verse 36, they offered him wine vinegar. And again, Luke is almost certainly wanting us to see in that an echo of Psalm 69, verse 21, where we read that I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Luke is echoing these psalms. But see, here's the thing. Both of those psalms, Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, don't stop with the suffering of the one who's describing that they're being unjustly treated. No, in both cases, the ending of Psalm 22 and of Psalm 69 moves on confidently to expect God's salvation and God's restoration, and indeed something will spread to the ends of the earth and to the heavens. That's at the end of Psalm 69. So you see, through these two scriptures, as it were, referred to, echoed, alluded to, in the way Luke describes the crucifixion, the soldiers and their gambling and the mocking gesture of giving him vinegar to drink, Luke is reminding us that God is still in charge here. This is still God's sovereignty at work. This awful suffering that was being witnessed will one day lead to victory and to praise. And then the fourth echo of scripture comes with the repentant criminal in verses 40 to 43. Uh, All the gospels tell us that there are two others who are crucified with them. Sometimes it's translated criminals. Probably one of the words that's used would mean something like a guerrilla fighter, a, a terrorist probably in our kind of language is what they were. But one of them turns to recognize Jesus. And he realizes that this Jesus, this man who's being crucified between them, really has done nothing wrong. And so he says in verse 41 something quite remarkable. He says, we are getting what we deserve, but he has done nothing wrong. And again, I'm pretty sure that Luke wants to hear an echo there of Isaiah chapter 53, where we read this, that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so this 
criminal in his words, Luke says, is echoing the scriptures. Whatever this guy is dying for, it's not for his own sin. And we know, of course, from the rest of the New Testament that he was dying for our sin. The punishment that we deserve was coming on him. It was for us. So you see, that's, that's the first thing, really, that Luke is doing here. He just paints these scenes, one after the other, and yet in each case, through the lens of Scripture, he shows us something more profound that is happening through these weeping women and gambling soldiers and mocking bystanders and a repentant terrorist. We are learning something. We're learning the warning of a judgment to come that will be even worse. We learn of this guarantee of Christ's suffering will ultimately result in God's victory. And we're learning of the assurance that our sins can be forgiven because Christ bore them innocently for us. So that moves us on then from those four echoes of Scripture to the way Luke portrays the meaning of the cross also through three taunts that were hurled at Jesus. I don't know if you noticed, uh, as Laura read this passage to us, that three times, three times, someone cries out, save yourself, or let him save himself. Three times. It could almost be described as the three last temptations of Christ, because there's something profoundly tempting in this for Christ that I'll come to in a moment. A bit like this is echoing the three original temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness, way back in Luke chapter 4, from the devil. Because there's almost a very similar kind of feel about it. You may remember back then in the wilderness how the devil said to Jesus, well, if you are the Son of God, then don't go this route of suffering. No, no, Uh, be a political, powerful person. Be a a spectacular jumper off the temple. Do anything, but don't go the way of suffering and death. That's what the devil tried to tempt him with. And even now, at the cross itself, the devil tries desperately one last time. If only he could get Jesus to save himself, then his whole mission to save the world would be lost. And so Satan here again speaks, but he speaks through three different groups of people who actually had nothing much in common with each other, except that they're all enemies of Jesus one way or another. Uh, And first of all, there's the the religious leaders there in verse 35, where they say, um, can you see it there in verse 35? Am I in verse 35? Yes. Uh, I've got the wrong chapter open in front of me. Verse 35. They said the rulers sneered at him and said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. You see, their mockery was a rejection of the claims of Jesus to be the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the Savior. (laughs) Laughable, isn't it? Stuck up on a cross. And yet, of course, the irony is that that's exactly what Jesus was and is. And so here are these rulers who state the truth and reject the truth in the same breath. How scary, how dangerous is that? And then, secondly, we read of the Roman soldiers who, in verse 37, offer him the wine vinegar and say, well, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Same words. Their mockery is not like the rulers are rejection of the claim of Jesus, but the rejection of the charge against Jesus. Because that's what was written up above his head. Jesus of Nazareth, 
king of the Jews. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I mean, what kind of king are you? Stuck up there with thorns for a crown and a cross for a throne. I mean, this is ridiculous. And yet again, of course, there's huge irony here, isn't it? Because what they say and what was written above his head was actually the truth. Jesus, not just king of the Jews, king of the universe on that cross. And then thirdly, there's the resistance fighter, the guerrilla, the terrorist in verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at them. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. What he's doing is his mockery is a rejection of Jesus' failure to be a real messianic leader that they'd hoped for. He's saying, look, you should have joined us, you know, when you had a chance, when you could have joined us, the zealots, the the revolutionaries, and you still could, if you are really the Messiah, save yourself and us. And then we'll jump down off these crosses and fight the Romans and send them back to Rome and all of that. (laughs) Ha ha, as if. It's mockery. It's taunting. But you see, save yourself. That's what they said to Jesus. Save yourself and us. Save yourself and us. But you see, that was, of course, precisely what Jesus could not do. That's to say, he could not both save himself and save us. Now, we need to be absolutely clear at this point, and maybe we don't get hold of this, but Jesus could have saved himself, and he knew it. This is what he says in Matthew's gospel, uh, in chapter 26, verse 53, when he was on trial, he says, do you think that I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus could have called on all the hosts of heaven to save him. But Jesus says, but then, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say that this must happen? So Jesus could have saved himself all that shame. could have saved himself all that pain and torture and suffering. He could have saved himself. But if he had, then he could not have saved us by bearing our sins as he was doing. So you see, this, this choice is very stark before Jesus. That's why this was such a, a terrible testing, a satanic temptation. He could choose to save us or himself, but he chose to save us because that's why he came. Do you remember he said that? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But if he was going to save us, then he could not save himself. And so that means, you see, that Jesus chose that. He chose not to save himself. He chose to go through to death. He chose to stay on the cross for my sake, for your sake. And that's why the very last words that Luke records show that Jesus makes that choice and he gives up his life deliberately. And those last words are when he cries out in verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he'd said this, he breathed his last. He chose to die on the cross. So you see, by not doing what the criminals wanted him to do, he was able to do 
what they actually needed him to do, which was to provide a way through his death, a way of salvation and eternal life, which one of them took, as we shall see, a way that is still open. And that brings us then from these three taunts, four echoes of scripture, three taunts, and finally, Luke portrays the meaning of the cross through two of the last sayings of Jesus. Now, the Gospels record some seven different ways in which Jesus spoke from the cross, uh, but here are two of them in this passage. One is a prayer in verse 34, and one is a promise in verse, verse 43, and both of them are massively surprising and unexpected, and yet filled with hope. Here's the first. Father, forgive them. You see that there in verse 34. As they were nailing them to the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Now we surely are astonished at that. I mean, not just because, well, how could he express such feelings, such a prayer for people who are actually treating him with such appalling brutality, cruelty, nailing him to wood, having flogged him almost to death. So it's astonishing simply because we we can't imagine somebody wanting to forgive those who are doing that to them. But also, in another way, you see, it's astonishing because it's unprecedented. And I mean unprecedented in the scriptures of the Old Testament, which we know we're filling the mind of Jesus all through his life and all through his death. The scriptures were in his mind. And if you go back to the Old Testament, what, what could you do when people were falsely accusing you or when they were violently attacking you or when they were trying to kill you? Well, what you were not supposed to do was to take vengeance yourself. Do not take revenge, says the Lord, because vengeance is mine. So you were not to fight back with personal vengeance, but you could ask God to do it for you. And they do. You could ask God to do what God has promised to do, which is to put down the wicked and vindicate the righteous and sort things out. You could pray to God to do that. And the Psalms do that. So you see, Jesus would have known that kind of language that is there in the Psalms, crying out, for justice, for God to do justice to those who are doing evil. He would have known, for example, the cry of Isaiah against the wicked and oppressors of his day when Isaiah says in chapter 2, do not forgive them, Lord, judge them. He would have known the way in which Jeremiah responded against his persecutors who were physically abusing him and everything else. And Jeremiah says, bring on them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. And Jesus would have known of the Maccabean martyrs, that is, those who about a 100 years before Christ had revolted against Rome and then were captured and caught and slaughtered and they died declaring God's punishment on their murderers, calling down God's vengeance upon them. Jesus would have known those stories. But he transcends all of that, and he prays, Father, forgive them. And in those words, he sets a whole new standard, a new model, an example for all his followers. Because, of course, when Jesus said those words, he was only doing 
what he himself had taught his disciples to do. Do you remember how he said, love your enemies and bless those who curse you and pray for those who persecute you? Except that here Jesus is praying not just for those who are cursing him, but those who are nailing him to a plank of wood. That's a bit different. But then you come to the very first Christian martyr, Stephen, in the book of Acts, and you find that he was enabled by God's power to follow Jesus' example. And as they were stoning him to death, he prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I don't know, can we still do that today? Is it still possible? In a sense, no, it isn't. Not by human strength. That kind of forgiveness of those who are doing violence is only possible through the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace and only as he is formed within us and speaks through us. In February of 2015, there were 20 Coptic Christian men, that is from Egypt, who were beheaded, as you may remember, on the beach in Libya. They all, or most of them, came from one village, a Christian village down in southern Egypt. And the mother of one of them, a man called Tawadros Yusuf, she said, this mother of a son who had been beheaded, she said, I do not wish them, that is those who had killed them, I do not wish them evil. I pray for them that God may open their hearts and give them light. Only Jesus Only Jesus can enable somebody to say that. So he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) Well, at one level, they did. They were as responsible for their sin and their guilt as anybody else. They knew they were just nailing somebody to a cross, whether he was guilty or innocent. But in another sense, no, they didn't. Because, you see, what they were doing at that moment was accomplishing at a human level the deeper purposes of God himself. They didn't know that at that moment. And yet that's what Peter says was happening when Peter describes this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter says, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, Roman soldiers, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. So you see, in putting Jesus to death on the cross, they were participating at a historical level in that one act of human history that enabled them and all sinners to be forgiven, including you and me. So you see, Jesus prayed that they should be forgiven. And Jesus died so that they could be forgiven. That was the prayer, Father, forgive them. And then there's the second saying that I wanted to draw your attention to, which is the promise there in verse 43. Today you will be with me in paradise. So one of these two criminals then, for some unexplained reason, recognizes Jesus, recognizes the truth about this Jesus, even though he's being crucified, that actually he is God's Messiah and God's future king. But of course, you know, We're all going to die now, aren't we? So what is he saying here? He must be meaning that this kingdom of this Messiah will only come about somehow in the age to come, on the day of resurrection, 
Because you see, Jews like him and others, they, most of them anyway, believed in the resurrection. But it was something that was going to come in the future when all the dead would be raised to life on the last day. Remember, that's what Martha, the sister of Mary and Lazarus, Lazarus who had died, and she says, Jesus says to her that your brother will rise again, and she says to him, yeah, well, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And that's probably what this criminal, this terrorist means. He says, Lord, remember me on that day. Actually, we know that those words, remember me, have been found on some of the gravestones, the tombstones of people around that time, religious Jews, who were saying to God, God, when the resurrection day comes, remember me. You know, I'm stuck here, but please remember me when everybody's raised. Don't forget me. That's probably what this man is meaning. Lord, remember me on that last day when you come into your kingdom. And so there's the surprise when Jesus says to him this amazing promise, today, today, even though you're going to die, as we all are in these crosses, today you will be with me in paradise. Which doesn't just mean that he's going off to heaven at that point. The word paradise in their thinking at that time was the place of the righteous dead, those who had died in a right relationship with God and who were then awaiting the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus is saying to this man, you will be with me. You will be on my side. You will be sharing in my victory. You will belong to my kingdom on that day. And so he could die in hope, in peace, that in spite of all his sins and his wrongdoings and probably the murders he'd committed, who knows what all else, he had confessed that. He said, we've done this. We deserve to die. But his future is safe because he has recognized Jesus. He's turned to Jesus. He's trusted in Jesus. And he's saved. Not saved from the cross, but saved by the cross of the man being crucified beside him. Saved. Why was that terrorist on the cross saved? Well, he was saved for several reasons, because he recognized who Jesus was, he turned to Jesus, he confessed his faith, he trusted in Jesus, he called out to Christ, and he was saved. And I think Luke almost certainly wants us to see in that an example for all his readers to follow, including you and me. Have you done that? Have you recognized who Jesus is? Have you studied the Gospels? Have you read it? Have you come along to a course to find out more about Jesus so that you can turn to him, confess your sin, trust Jesus, and hear that promise of eternal life? Well, there we have it. What has Luke done for us? He's given us four echoes of the scripture, three taunts that were hurled at Jesus, two of the last sayings of Jesus, and one whole meaning of Easter. Nothing less than that. Because you see, the answer to Jesus' prayer for forgiveness was only possible through the death of Christ. And the fulfillment of Jesus' promise of eternal life was only possible through the resurrection of Christ. And in telling us that, Luke has really told us all we need to know, which is that through his death on the cross, you can have the forgiveness 
that Jesus prayed for. And that through his resurrection, you can have the eternal life that Jesus promised. Make sure, won't you, that you have both of those this Easter. Let's pray together. Perhaps it is a moment in which you would want to turn to Jesus as that thief turned to him on the cross. Recognize who he is. Recognize that he was dying for us, for you, for me. That he was bearing our sins in his own body on that cross. And in turning to him, hear his prayer that we can be forgiven and his promise that we can have eternal life. Thank you, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus Christ, that these things are the truth. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what Easter is all about. Help it to become real, I pray, for each one of us here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.